Verse 1. And at the same time came the disciples unto Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called a little child unto him, and set him in the midst of them, and said, Truly I say unto you, Unless you be converted and become as little children, you shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoso shall receive one such child in my name receives me. But whoso shall offend one of these little childs which believes in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that offenses come, but woe to that man by whom the offense comes. Wherefore, if your hand or your foot offend thee, cut them off, cast them from thee. It is better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. And if your eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. Take heed that you despise not one of these little ones. For I say unto you that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. For the Son of Man is come to save that which was lost. How do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them be gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine and go into the mountains and seek the one that has gone astray? And... If so be that he finds it, truly I say unto you, he rejoices more of that sheep than of the ninety-nine which went not astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father which is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Let's pray again. Our awesome God, Lord, as we approach your word this morning, we ask that you would give us a true sense of fear and trembling as we are hearing from your word, the word of God, the God who created us. Lord, we thank you for these words and we ask that you'd fill us with your Holy Spirit and give us ears to hear and understand what it is that you have to say to us Help us to see that we're hearing from you. Help us to tune our ears to you, Lord, so that we can hear from you. And help us to listen to what you're saying, even if it's difficult and even if it may hurt. Lord, we thank you that you love us. And we thank you for this time. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Webster's Dictionary defines the word great as follows. Great is that which is large in bulk or in dimension. Large in bulk or in dimension. It is a term of comparison, denoting more magnitude 
or extension than something else or beyond what is usual. More magnitude or extension than something else or beyond what is usual. Notice the words large, more, extension, beyond. This is what the word great means. When we talk about something or someone being great, we're talking about them having big attributes or big assets versus little or usual assets. Let me give you a famous example. You've probably all heard of the Great Wall of China, right? The Great Wall of China. What makes the Great Wall of China great? Is it the stones that, it use it, that, it, that is used in it? No. Is it the fact that it's a wall? No. There's many walls, and there's many walls made with the exact same stones. What makes the Great Wall of China great is that it's huge, right? It's bigger than usual. In fact, you can see it from space, apparently. That's why the Great Wall of China is great. Here's another example. Alexander the Great. So, Alexander was a king in the days before Jesus, about 300 years before Jesus, and he had the title great. A lot of kings called themselves great. Why? Because they wanted to set themselves apart from everybody else, right? They were not usual. And maybe a king might call himself great for doing something, and others might dispute whether he was really great or not. But certainly Alexander the Great, in the eyes of most men, was great. Because he became king at a very young age, and in a very short time, took over the entire world, basically. <laughs> Alexander's conquests were fast and unusual. And he died at the age of 33, having conquered more than any man had ever conquered before. And once he had conquered it all, Alexander the Great died of malaria. So, we call him great because of the great things he did. The big attributes, the big assets that he had. The way he conquered was greater than other men. Alexander the Great. Greatness is something that is common in our world. I'm sure we all think about greatness. Every single one of us has thoughts of greatness. This is what our world, how our world operates, isn't it? We think in terms of greatness. Tim, you recently ran a triathlon, right? Or did you do a marathon as well? Marathon. So you wouldn't be impressed if someone said, hey, Tim, I ran a mile, right? <laughs> That's not great. It's not very far. It's not very long. I'd be impressed if you told me that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> true. <laughs> That's true. But for most people, and for most runners, a person wouldn't be called great if they ran a mile, right? It wouldn't be called great. What makes you great is that you run 26 miles, or 30 miles, or 50 miles, or however long you run. Um, someone might be said to have not so great a voice when they sing, right? What that means is uh, either it, their voice lacks volume, it lacks clarity and beauty, or it lacks pitch. You ever tried to hear someone sing who can't even hit a note? <laughs> they have not so great a voice. On the other hand, when you hear someone like uh, the, the late Pavarotti sing, you would say, man, that man has a great voice. He has assets when it comes to singing. He is unusually good. Or maybe we talk about a great movie. Have you ever told someone about a great movie? 
He said, oh, it's such a great movie. Why? Well, it's different than others, or it has qualities and assets that other movies don't have. It makes you laugh more than other movies. It has better effects than other movies. It has a better story than other movies. It has assets which make it great. Our whole world is full of this idea of greatness and operates by it. Therefore, it's not unusual that the disciples come to Jesus with a question about greatness. Now look with me to verse 1. The disciples have a question about greatness. And the question they have doesn't come out of the blue. If you see the Greek text of verse 1, the Greek actually goes like this. So then, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? The question implies a previous circumstance or a previous discussion that would prompt this question. Who then is the greatest? The Gospel of Mark tells us that the disciples had been debating about it on their way to Capernaum. So Mark, Matthew doesn't tell us this here, but while they were going to Capernaum from the Mount of Transfiguration and from the Caesarea Philippi where Jesus had announced uh, that Peter had declared him to be the Christ, the Son of the living God, they were debating who is the greatest. They were probably debating it in light of Peter's commendation that Peter gave him. So Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Peter, Simon Barjona. Flesh and blood hasn't revealed this unto you, but my Father which is in heaven. I say unto you, you're Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church. The gates of hell won't prevail. And who knows if maybe the disciples were wondering, is Peter better than we are? Right? How come Jesus took Peter, James, and John onto the mountain of transfiguration, not us? We don't know. I'm speculating. But what we do know is this was a discussion they were having. They were disputing about it. They were arguing about it. And so they come to Jesus. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Maybe they were saying something like this. Well, in the world, it seems like men think people who have great athletic ability or athletic ability are great. Those are the guys who are on TV. Those are the guys who are um, on posters. Those are the guys people look up to. They name their children after. These are the great people. The athletics. The athletes. The ones who accomplish feats in the arena. But then they might say to themselves, no, that's not right. The world might praise them, but certainly in heaven, it's not going to be because you are physically athletic that you're going to be great in heaven. God's not that shallow, I don't think. So maybe they said, well, maybe it's those who have the most intellectual prowess. You know, maybe they're the ones who are the great in the kingdom of heaven. Maybe the smart ones. The smartest are the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Then they might argue about that and say, well, Peter isn't that astute. So it can't be that. He gets the combination, but it can't be that. No, that's too shallow still. Maybe it's the one with the most boldness. The person who has the most boldness is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. But again, all these options fall shallow and they argue. Could it be the one who has the most good works? The one who does the most good deeds? The one who gives his life in service most to God? And they're debating about what it may be. And when they come to Jesus with this very important question, Jesus says something surprising. Jesus doesn't say, great question, guys. 
Let me tell you who's going to be the greatest. This is what Jesus does. It says in Matthew, he calls a little child. The meaning is not that he says, hey, child, come here. He summons for a little child. If you take Matthew, Mark, and Luke together, Jesus calls for a little child in the Greek word, the word paideon, everywhere in the, in the New Testament, is infant to about two years old. Charis. Okay? This is the kind of child Jesus called. And in Mark, he summons for the child, and Mark says that Jesus scoops the child up in his arms, so it's a tiny little child, and he's holding the baby, and he says to them, unless you change or turn and become like a little child, like a little baby, you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Notice he doesn't say who's the greatest. He just bypasses that altogether. You will not even enter the kingdom of God unless you're like a little baby. Look at Karis as she's going away. Get one last good look. <laughs> Jesus is saying you need to be like that in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. So he doesn't so much answer their question, but explodes their question. R.T. France writes this. Jesus' answer is typically graphic and radical. It amounts to a total reversal of human value scales. A child was a person of no importance in Jewish society, and I would add in our society as well. It's not just Jewish society. How, much, how important is a child in our society? I mean, he's going to say it's not that he's not important at all. Uh, a child was of no importance in Jewish society, subject to the authority of his elders, not taken seriously except as a responsibility, one to be looked after, not looked up to. To turn and become like children is therefore a radical reorientation from the mentality of the rat race to an acceptance of insignificance. We're not saying a child doesn't have value here. We're saying a child is unimportant in our society. When was the last time you voted for a baby to be the president of the United States? <laughs> Ever? No, they don't even get to run. When was the last time you ask a baby what they want for dinner? Jesus points to what to them is not great, brothers and sisters. Think about greatness. What is great about a baby? Now, I know this sounds bad, right? I want to suggest to you there is nothing great about a baby. It sounds bad. I'm not saying babies aren't valuable. I'm not saying babies aren't cute. I'm not saying babies aren't wonderful. I'm saying babies aren't great. What assets do babies have? There's nothing unusual about them, right? You might say, well, my baby is cute, but it's not the only cute baby, is it? There's other cute babies, isn't there? You're not going to say, well, my baby is unusually large. <laughs> okay. Well, there's other large babies too, but it does not, it's not that much larger, right? Have you ever seen a baby walk on water? Have you ever seen a baby play the piano? Have you ever seen a baby like, play the piano well? Have you ever seen a baby do anything great? That would make you think, I want to be like that. That's amazing. <laughs> 
Brothers and sisters, the point is that Jesus points to what the disciples do not think is great. They have no assets. There's nothing unusual. There's nothing spectacular about a baby. I think it's funny, but if we don't see this, we will not understand what he's saying. Let me make it clear. Jesus is not referring to the character traits of babies, but to the status of a child or a little baby. Not, he's not saying, you have to become like this sinless little angel over here. Okay? If you want to enter the kingdom of God, you've got to become like this cute little innocent baby. Okay? He's not saying you need to become cute. He's not saying you need to become ignorant and dumb. He's not saying you need to physically shorten yourself. He's saying you need to become insignificant like a baby. In verse 4, humble yourself. The word humble yourself here is used by Paul in the book of Philippians chapter 2, verse 8 of Jesus. Jesus humbled himself from his position as God in heaven, not, not counting it robbery to be equal with God, and he humbled himself and became a man. It therefore doesn't mean he took on an innocent, sinless character. He was sinless and innocent before he humbled himself. But that he took a lowly position of insignificance. Brothers and sisters, compared to God, we are all still like babies. Think about a baby. Nothing is great about them. Nothing is unusual. But as we grow, we think we graduate from being babies, right? You think you graduate from insignificance, is what I'm trying to say. Because now you can speak. Now you can write. Now you can run. Now you can govern your own affairs. Now you can uh, run for office. Now you can do artwork. Now you can be an athlete. Now you can uh, conquer the world. Now you can build great walls of China. You're not insignificant anymore. You were insignificant and like everybody else when you were a baby. But once you get older, you become significant and different than other people. In fact, the rest of your life is you're trying to make yourself different than other people. You're trying to show that you're not a baby anymore. Right? Compared to babies, we think we're significant. I'm not like baby anymore. I'm, I can do stuff. I can do great things. Compared to God, we're all still babies. Compared to God, we're all still insignificant. Compared to God, we're all not great. Do you believe this? Do you think God is impressed by the Great Wall of China? Do you think God is impressed with Alexander the Great? Was he impressed with Nebuchadnezzar? When Nebuchadnezzar looked over his kingdom and said, all this kingdom, my greatness and power has accomplished for my own greatness and glory. What was the next thing Nebuchadnezzar was doing? Eating grass. Right? Do you think God is impressed by the glory of the kingdom of Babylon? Is God impressed by athletes who get gold medals at the Olympics? Does God think these men are great? Is God impressed with the learning of the learned? You see, we think we're great. We think we're significant. We think we're not like babies because we merely compare ourselves 
among ourselves. Brothers and sisters, compared to God, we are insignificant. In verse 4, Jesus says, Whoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Well, he just said, you have to humble yourself like a little child to get into the kingdom of heaven. So if you have to humble yourself to get into the kingdom of heaven, every single person in the kingdom of heaven has humbled themselves like a child, and every single person in the kingdom of heaven is therefore great, and if everybody's great, then nobody's great. Because nobody is unusual. And Jesus here is doing away with greatness. Because here, greatness consists in not being great. In fact, if you think you're great because you humbled yourself, and you think, I truly am different than other people because I humbled myself, I realized I wasn't great, then you still truly aren't like a child who just isn't great. Right? A.B. Bruce writes this, a king's child has no more thought of greatness than a beggar's child. Right? He just doesn't think about his own greatness. John Calvin wrote this, by humility... He does not mean when a man with a consciousness of some virtue refrains from pride, but when he truly feels that he has no virtue, no refuge but in humility. Okay? We're not talking about thinking you are great and just not saying it and just not uh, just suppressing your pride, but you realize you have no greatness. Jesus' answer to the disciples lays the foundation of Christianity. It was said of St. Augustine that he said Christianity is first humility, second humility, and third humility. Humility, not greatness, is what Christianity, is what the kingdom of God is all about. And the disciples had a new lesson to learn. You see, this is essential to salvation. Jesus says here, if you don't humble yourself and become like a child, you will not enter the kingdom of God. Brothers and sisters, you will not enter the kingdom of God until you know that you have no assets. Until you realize you have nothing to commend yourself before God. Until you realize you aren't great and you aren't different, you aren't unusual, you aren't better than anyone else. Jesus said in Matthew 5.3 something similar. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The poor in spirit, the spiritual beggars, the ones who know they don't have anything. J.C. Ryle writes this, hitting it on the head. This is a conversion from pride to humility, from high thoughts of ourselves to lowly thoughts of ourselves, from self-conceit to self-abasement, get this, from the mind of the Pharisee to the mind of the publican. What was the, what was the Pharisee's mind? God, I thank, you like, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I'm great. Why am I great? Because of what I do. I tithe. I give my money to the poor. I fast. I pray. I do good deeds. I'm great. I'm different. I'm acceptable to you. I've got assets. What was the publican's mind? He couldn't look up. 
I'm not worthy. God be merciful to me, a sinner. I have demerits, not assets. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is saying it's not about becoming innocent like a baby. That would only make you proud. Because then you could say, look, I'm cute and innocent like a baby. I don't sin like babies don't sin. Yeah, right. Nor is it about physically becoming like a baby, like some crazy people in this world actually put on diapers in their adult age trying to be like a baby in order for them to enter the kingdom of God. I've heard of this. But it's about understanding you have no assets. All you are, all you have is nothing. Do you think your righteousness is impressive to God? When you do good deeds, when you go to church, when you give your money to the poor, when you give your money to the church, when you go on a mission trip, when you evangelize to the lost, when you love your wife, do you think that God thinks, wow, I'm so impressed with the greatness of this person. Their righteousness is impressive to me. Brothers and sisters, you don't know what righteousness is until you've understood the righteousness of God. Jesus talks a lot about the righteousness of God. Jesus talks about righteousness and that no one is righteous. No one is good but God. No one is great but God. No one has assets but God. All you are and all you have is nothing. This is what the Apostle Paul learned. I remind you of Philippians chapter 3, where the Apostle Paul said, if there was anyone who had assets, if there was anyone who had something that would make him great. Basically, Paul said, before I understood Christianity, I thought I was great. In fact, by all human standards, I was great. I was better than other people, by human standards. Who I was, what I did, was something. It set me apart. It made me unusual. It, it gave me assets before God. It made me acceptable to God, so he thought, until he came to know Christ. And then what does Paul say about his assets? They're all dumb. They're all worth nothing. They don't gain anything. He actually counts them as loss. What he thought was gain was actually loss. If he held on to those things, he'd lose. He wouldn't enter the kingdom of God. They would sink him down to hell. And he threw those assets, those supposed assets, away from him like dung and said, Christ is all and all. How about you? Brothers and sisters, how about you? Are you of the mind of the Pharisee or are you of the mind of the publican this morning? Do you think you are great? Do you think you have assets? Do you think you have righteousness of your own? Do you think you are an adult who deserves admiration and praise in the eyes of God? Or do you see yourself as a baby in God's sight? Insignificant, helpless. Your very life is not because of your own doing. Your very existence is not because of your own doing. Your very preservation is not because of your own doing. Everything you have and everything you are is from God. You are not great. Jesus said, unless you become like a little child, you will not enter the kingdom of God. So this is not something to be trifled with at all. Ask yourself this morning, 
What is your mind? From verse 5 now to verse 14, there are only two options of interpretation. Either Jesus is still talking about literal babies, or he's now talking about those who are like little babies. When he talks about verse 5, Whoso shall receive one such little child in my name receives me. Who shall, whoso shall offend one of these little ones who believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged around his neck and that he were drowned in the depths of the sea. Take heed that you despise not one of these little ones, verse 10. For I say unto you that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven, verse 14. Even so it is not the will of your Father which is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. He's either still talking about little, literal, literal babies or he's now talking about those who have humbled themselves and are like little babies. I believe it's the latter that is correct. Jesus is not now talking about physical babies, but now he's talking about little ones. Those who have humbled themselves, those who realize they have nothing, those who are of the mind of the publican. Jesus speaks to them with an endearing term, little ones. Little ones versus great ones. The term implies a contrast. And I believe this because verse 5, 6, 11 to 14 makes little sense if applied to literal children. The child is young, remember. A baby doesn't believe anything. How do you offend one of these little ones who believe in me? Or verse, verse 5, Whoso shall receive one such little child in my name receives me. Does that mean if you receive a little baby and are friendly with it, then you're, you're receiving Christ? Verse 11 to 14 talks about them being lost. The Son of Man came to save that which was lost. It's not his will that one of these little ones should perish. And while I certainly don't believe it's, a, it's the will of God that a baby should perish, I don't believe here it's ta he's talking about little, literal babies. But it's not God's will that one of those who have humbled themselves as a little child should perish. In the Gospel of John, Jesus calls the disciples little children, just like he calls them here, Padeon. You'll remember in 1 John, the apostle refers to the believers as little children. And already in Matthew, we've seen, whoever gives a cup of cold water to one of the little ones, because he's my disciple, has, will not lose his reward. I thank you, Father, maker of heaven and earth, that you've revealed these things to the babes. So Christ now turns and addresses how we treat those who have no assets. How we treat those little ones who have humbled themselves and realized they're nothing. How do we treat those little ones? If you receive them in verse 5, even though they have nothing, you receive Christ. Likewise, if you reject them, if you reject those who have no assets, it's because you reject Christ. What does this mean? Do you welcome those who have nothing? Do you welcome them? I think welcome is a good word. Do you welcome them if someone comes and says, I have absolutely nothing. I'm a sinner, but I have Christ. Jesus died for me and that's all I need. Do you welcome them and say, welcome, brother, sister, do you welcome them as saved or do you welcome such into salvation? 
if you meet someone who's not a Christian, but they say, I'm, I got no hope, I got nothing, I'm just a sinner. And you say, you can come in freely. Or do you say, well, no, you can't come in freely. You better go get some assets before you come. You can't enter the kingdom of God as a baby. You've got to go get some assets. You've got to go become great here. You've got to go get some righteous deeds. Here, here's a list. Or if you meet someone who claims to be a Christian and saved, and they say, why, why, are you going to, why are you right with God? Why are you saved? And they say, well, I got nothing. I just got Jesus. He died for me. That's all I need. And they say, that's not true. You've got to have more than that. Here's the list. See, what you do with those who have nothing reveals your conception of God and his salvation, right? If you think God doesn't accept the little ones who have nothing, then you won't accept the little ones who have nothing. If you don't think God saves the sinners who have nothing, then you won't accept them as saved, the sinners who have nothing. You'd be like a Pharisee who says, this publican shouldn't even be here. I thank you, Lord, that I'm not like him. Romans chapter 14, 15, verse 7, Paul says, Receive one another as Christ also received us to the glory of God. How did Christ receive you, brothers and sisters? Think about it. Why, are you, why did you get received into the kingdom of God? Was it because you were great? Ask yourself this. Did you get received into the kingdom of God because you were something great? because you did something special, because you had some righteous deeds? Is that why you are accepted by God? Let me suggest to you, if you think it is, then you are not a Christian. But if you can say, yeah, it wasn't because I had anything. It was a free, freely given thing. It was a gift. He welcomed me in. I had no merit of my own. I was lost. I was insignificant. I was perishing. I deserved death. He welcomed me in. If Christ did this for you, then you ought to also do this for others. If you believe he's done that for you, you will do that for others. In verse 6 and 7, Christ gives a stern warning to those who despitefully treat the poor in spirit. Those who don't welcome them in. See, Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, but there are many who say, cursed are the poor in spirit. Jesus said, you are blessed if you have nothing. And there's many who say, you, don't, you won't get into the kingdom of God unless you have something. They put stumbling blocks against those who believe or would believe to come in. They say, you can't come freely. You can't come if you have nothing. And they preach lies to them. And they say, you've got to keep the commandments. You've got to do something. You've got to present God something that shows you're different and other than the rest of the scum of the earth. Because God's not going to save the scum. So you've got to sort of do something different here. And they put stumbling blocks against those who would believe or have believed. And sadly, brothers and sisters, many people perish because of false teachers. And Jesus pronounces a solemn woe upon them. Woe to you if you put a stumbling block in a person's way and you say that God will not accept them freely. Woe to you if you come and say... Because you have nothing, and because you're spiritually poor, you can't come. Woe to you. The Apostle Paul echoes this in Galatians chapter 1. He said, whoever comes and brings another gospel, there is only one gospel, and that's the gospel of the grace of God, and that God accepts sinners freely. So if you brought any other gospel, it would be that God doesn't accept sinners freely. Paul says in Galatians, 
If anyone comes and brings another gospel other than that which we have brought unto you, let them be cursed. And so basically in verse 7, Jesus is saying, Woe to those false prophets who lead men to hell, thinking they must have assets to be saved. Woe to the Joseph Smiths of this world. Woe to the Mohammeds of this world. Woe to anyone or any doctrine that tells men they need assets. They cannot come to God as poor in spirit. That they need to be something other than children, insignificant and without nothing to be saved. In verse 8 and 9, Jesus now addresses the little ones. And what he gives here is an exhortation to men to sever from oneself anything or anyone that puts a stumbling block in the way of believing in the good news of the grace of God and in the gospel, no matter how dear it may be to you. See, the Bible never says that your body is sinful. When Jesus says, cut, up, cut apart your body, the body doesn't represent sin. The body's never seen as sinful in itself. What he's referring to here is whatever causes you to stumble. Whatever causes you to stumble, no matter how dear it may be to you. Jesus uses the same metaphor in the Sermon on the Mount. Only there it's about the seriousness with which the law must be obeyed. He's basically saying the law demands your obedience. If anything keeps you from obeying the law, cut it off. That's how serious it is. If you're going to be saved by obeying the law, then you better be serious about it and cut off anything that would keep you from obeying. Of course, we know that no one will be saved by obedience to the law. But here he turns to the gospel and he shows us the seriousness of believing in the gospel. This is no casual thing. If anything keeps you from believing in the gospel, you cut it off. Whether it's your family, your most dear friend, your most pet little doctrine, you cut it off if it makes you stumble and it makes you think that you can't come freely. That's hard, isn't it? Jesus says hard things. Many people will not become Christians because, well, to do so, I'd lose my family. Jesus is not saying hate your family. He's saying, so be it. If you must lose your family to become a Christian and save your soul, so be it. It's better for you to lose your family and go into life than to keep your family and to go to hell, isn't it? Isn't it? Is it worth keeping your family for 45 years and then losing it all and going to hell? Perhaps by turning, perhaps by severing off your family, you might save them. Perhaps they might consider their own soul. Better to enter life than eternity in hell. Jesus is not just talking about pure resolve, but simple vision. It's a no-brainer. If you get it, wow, salvation is a free gift. If I do not humble myself and become like a child, I'm not entering in. Once you realize that, brothers and sisters, it's not difficult to decide to cut off the arm or pluck out the eye. The same Christ who tells us about heaven tells us about hell. There are many people today who deny the existence of hell, but Christ could not have spoken clearer about hell in his day. And the sad thing is, is that men who refuse to believe him will one day learn that there is such a thing as the wrath of the Lamb. Hell here, Jesus says, is eternal. 
It's no temporary stay. It's no little vacation. It's forever. Therefore, cut off whatever might cause you to stumble. And lastly, in verse 10 to 14, Jesus gives us a further argument not to despise those who are spiritually poor and who have no assets. What does he say? A further reason not to despise them, not to cut them off, not to throw them away, not to, not to say they can't come. And the answer is, is because God in heaven loves them and he does not despise them. In essence, Jesus is saying, do you know who these people are? Do you know what they mean to God? Don't mess with them. Don't mess with God's little ones. Don't mess with the ones who are poor in spirit and who look to God as a child looks to a father for everything. Don't touch the apple of God's eye. He loves them. He values them. Someone might say, but they've got nothing. They're worthless, ruined people. And Jesus says, yes, but the Son of Man came into the world to save that which was lost. The word lost in the Greek is so much stronger. It literally means ruined. You know, even in English, we can say something is lost, but we can still entertain some hope that we might find it. Right? I lost my wallet, but I'm looking for it, hoping I'll find it. The idea is I've lost it irretrievably. It's lost. It's long gone. All is lost, ruined, and therefore salvation requires the supernatural. This is no natural remedy that can save a lost person. How can someone with no assets, how can someone with no righteousness enter the kingdom of God when the Bible also tells us that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? That you need to have a righteousness greater than the scribes and the Pharisees in order to enter the kingdom of God. And here he's saying, you've got to have nothing to get into the kingdom of God. What's he talking about? He's talking about something supernatural. He's showing us that the way to salvation is not natural. It's not by you getting assets. It's by you who have no assets are coming in in a supernatural way. How can we be saved without, without any assets? Brothers and sisters, the answer is the gospel of Jesus Christ and the power of the cross of Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches us that Jesus, who was rich, became poor so that we might be made rich. The one with assets went to the cross to die for those without assets so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. The one who is great died for the ones who aren't great so that we might be lifted up from death and sit with him in the heavenly places. This is what the gospel is all about. It's not this natural thing. Don't believe some false prophet because it makes sense to you that of course I need to keep the commandments to go to heaven. Don't you realize that you have nothing and the way to heaven is a miracle? You need righteousness to get to heaven, yes. You don't have any in and of yourself, yes. The way to be righteous is a miracle. The death of Christ on the cross where Jesus died for your sins to take them away, you don't have to do that. He did that for you so that righteousness might come to you as a gift freely surprisingly, miraculously. The Bible says that in Isaiah 53, verse 6, all of us like sheep have gone astray. 
Jesus says here that if one goes astray and the 99 doesn't, he's just using an example. But the reality is, each of us has gone astray like a sheep. Every single one of us has turned to our own way. And what did God do? He didn't just stand back in the fold and say, come back here, right? You need to work your way back here or you can't come back. Think about this. The Lord laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Isn't that amazing? Every religion in the world that doesn't understand this doesn't understand the most beautiful and amazing miracle of all. The Lord laid upon him the iniquity of us all. You were lost and ruined, and he sought you. Think about this for yourself. Brothers and sisters, if God did not seek you, where would you be? If he did not choose to come for you, where would you end up? Don't take it for granted that he died for you. Don't think that's just the way things are. He did not have to come, but he did come. And had he not, we would have perished. Isn't that amazing? You are saved and have hope if you're a Christian because of his love, not because it's just the way things are. It's not his will, Jesus says in verse 14, that any should perish. If someone humbles themselves, humbles himself and says, I've got nothing, I'm poor in spirit, I'm bankrupt, I'm ruined. It's not God's will that that should perish. Think of that for yourself and believe the love that he has for you in that he came for you and that he gave himself for you, little one. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Well, Jesus answers the question very strangely. Ironically, it's the not greats. It's the nobodies. It's the ones who know they're nobodies and have accepted the one who is somebody. It's the ones who are like babies, who don't think of their greatness, and who just have nothing but helplessness. They have no assets. When we look at the book of Revelation and we see heaven, we do see someone who is great, and that's God. God is great. And men will praise God forever. Why? Unto him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. To him be glory and power and dominion and greatness forever and ever and ever. Have you humbled yourself as a little child? Do you think you've got assets? Are you comparing yourself amongst yourselves? Are you comparing yourself to babies and think, do you think you're something special because you're not like a baby? To God, you have nothing. So brothers and sisters, friends, lay down your delusion of grandeur and put your faith in the God who loves nobodies. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you alone are truly great. There's none beside you. Help us to see that when we're puffed up with pride because of our accomplishments, it's a delusion. Help us to see that we're not different than others and we're not better than others. Lord, when we look at you, we realize our nothingness. When we look at your righteousness, we realize our unrighteousness. 
All of our accomplishments don't impress you, God. But yet we thank you for loving us, for valuing us, for redeeming us, for seeking us, for dying for us, so that we could be saved in a miraculous way. And Lord, if there's anyone here who's not a Christian, who is believing false teachings, who thinks that they need to present to God something that sets them apart from others, Lord, help them to see that it's a lie. Help them to see that they need to become like children with nothing, insignificant, helpless, with nothing but your grace to hold them. And Lord, we just rejoice that you love us and that it's not your will that we perish. We thank you and we praise you today for you, you are great. You are truly great. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.